In dragging down the working class in England still further by the forced immigration of poor Irish people, the English bourgeoisie has not merely exploited Irish poverty. It has also divided the proletariat into two hostile camps. The fiery rebelliousness of the Celtic worker does not mingle well with the steady, slow nature of the Anglo-Saxon. In fact, all the major industrial centers of England, there is a profound antagonism between the Irish and the English proletarians. The ordinary English worker hates the Irish worker as a competitor who brings down his wages and standard of living. He also feels national and religious antipathies for him. It is rather the same attitude that the poor whites of the southern states of North America had for black slaves. This antagonism between the two groups of proletarians within England itself is artificially kept in being and fostered by the bourgeoisie, who know well that this split is the real secret of preserving their own power. This antagonism is reproduced once again on the other side of the Atlantic. The Irish, driven from their native soil by cattle and sheep, have landed in North America, where they form a considerable and increasing proportion of the population. Their sole thought, their sole passion, is their hatred for England. The English and the American governments, in other words, the classes they represent, nourish that passion so as to keep permanently alive the underground struggle between United States and England. In that way, they can prevent the sincere and worthwhile alliance between the working classes on the two sides of the Atlantic, which would lead to their emancipation. A people which subjugates another people forges its own chains. about Marx and the Civil War. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so what, 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 what does, what does this guy think he's doing talking about our war all the way over from London? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this European. Like, what, what possible London. insight does he think he has? Well, maybe we should just start by saying um, what we all think. <coughs> we could each just say what we think the the gist is, or the contribution, or what he's doing that's interesting and worth thinking about here. Well, I mean, I'm of the opinion that he's he's offering an economic explanation of warfare, which 
typically isn't had in, you know, I don't know what, what newspaper he was writing here for, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's the analytic virtue of it is that it's a way of thinking about history in material terms, but like, you know, the real consequential history, the, the history that everybody knows and remembers and, you know, learns in the third grade and so forth. So, I mean, what I get from this is really just, I think, a, a more, I, I, I don't know what the right word is, perhaps accurate conception of like what was happening to cause the civil war i mean there's a lot of i think a lot of people have an idea of what caused the civil war um but it's it's i i, I think there's a uh yeah there's an explanatory power to this that isn't i'm impressed by uh yeah i agree with all of that i would add that uh beyond just economic explanation uh, Marx really explains the Civil War uh, with recourse to a class analysis um, between different classes uh, that are brought about by different modes of production. In other words, the industrial uh, capitalists of the industrial north versus the slaveholders of the uh agrarian slave economy in the South. Uh, the Civil War for Marx is really a conflict between those two groups. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think what's interesting about... So I was really present, pleasantly surprised rereading these articles. It's It had been a minute since I'd read them, and I think um, what what is so great about his... So it's the North American Civil War we're talking about, and... Um, the Civil War in the United States. There are others, but these are the most, um, these are kind of the richest as far as, you know, getting a kind of explanatory picture of why the Civil War happened, according to Marx. And what's so great about him, <coughs> I think, is that it it really kind of puts on display his, his, you know, theory of how economic transformations can cause and therefore explain political conflicts and uh, in a way that really illuminates what happened. And, um, you know, I remember, I mean, I think everyone, everyone from, you know, everyone in America learned about this in high school, but it's really interesting to see him apply as a historical materialist and economic explanation of what exactly is going on if it's not just what we learned in school about, you know, a kind of, moral crusade to end an inhuman and unjust um, s form of society. So maybe we could go into that, but I mean, that was what was really interesting to me, how with an example with which everyone is very familiar, he not only gave a kind of convincing explanation, but also showed the power of, you know, his approach. Yeah, and I think it, it helps to clarify what his conception of historical progress is. Because, you know, we all know Marx as the critic of capitalism. But he's very clearly, in these writings, taking the side of the industrial north, the side of free labor, which, you know, for all the sins of wage labor, it's clearly preferable to slavery. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think just it, it can be a tricky issue, like, to talk about progress in history, especially in a context like this. But... He's affirming that there is definitely a progressive side to the war that um, I think is essential to his theory of what capitalism is. And, you know, warts and all, we kind of have to roll with it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And and to give and to give progress a descriptive material meaning instead of a merely moral one. I mean he thinks that there are positive consequences of it for human emancipation. But it's not just, you know, a process of, you know, unfolding moral superiority in history. Yeah. It's no, it's, it's right. not. <laughs> it's, that's uh I mean that's the easy way to look at it. It's not like we invaded Normandy to, to save the Jews. We didn't. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean, I think it's it's good to make that analytic distinction between a moral conception of history and a progressive conception of history. These aren't the same thing. They are different. Well, I say that because nowadays progressive often gets... It's just moralizing. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's but the, back in the day, at least, there were, there were materialist um, conceptions of politics yeah. for which progress meant, you know... Uh, now human needs can be met more efficiently yeah. than yeah. before. And I mean, it's measurable progress, well, if anything. Pro- is progress through the expansion of productive powers. Right. Yeah, which, you know, it's as measurable as it gets. Right. Um, okay, so maybe we should go into this. Um, well, should we say something about just the conflict that was involved between two modes of production? Sure, maybe, maybe we should there? start with that. So that's actually just skipping straight to the end of the second article, right? Uh, I believe so. Okay. Well, you wanna you wanna. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I think just broadly speaking, you could say that it's a economic conflict between an agrarian slave uh, economic model on the one hand, and then uh, industrial wage labor on the other. And I think you know, I mean, this is a conflict that was playing out in Europe at the same time through the 18th into the 19th century. You see, it's kind of the same dynamic in terms of one mode of production um, outstripping another. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting to see like what was at stake was the future of the country. I mean, this what kind of precipitated this was the, uh, the question of uh, whether slavery would be allowed in the new territories that were being added to the nation at the time. And ultimately whether it would dominate and the ruling class of the southern planters would be the ruling class of the entire hemisphere. I mean... Yeah, we could have a, 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 a um, you know, plantation owner ruling class or an industrial ruling class. Mm-hmm. And Marx is very firmly on the side of the industrial ruling class here. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's just put this out there. The um, Civil War in the United States concludes, The present struggle between the South and North is therefore nothing but a struggle between two social systems, the system of slavery and the system of free labor or wage labor. The struggle is broken out because the two systems can no longer live peacefully side by side on the North American continent. It can only be ended by the victory of one system or the other. It kind of puts a different perspective on it. Yeah. Have we have we gone over why these two um, social systems were in conflict with one another in the first place? No. So let's back up and get that clear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Why? Why couldn't um, free labor, i.e., industrial capitalism, coexist with? uh, the agrarian slave economy. Uh, 
Well, I, I think we have to look at uh, one of the things he's explaining is the growth needs of the agrarian economy. Like it was never like we couldn't have just had slavery in the South and just let them go their merry way, mm -hmm. accept it and, you know, save the union that way. It wouldn't have worked. And he's saying the reason it wouldn't have worked is because slavery as an economic model depended on growth. Mm -hmm. um, as does industry. They, they were both, I mean, these are both inherently growth-based. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's capitalism. It depends on growth. Yeah, um, I think that's really important. So, you know, I mean, in a sense, the sows and the plantations and the planters, the system was a kind of weird leftover from feudalism with landlords and sort of arrangement, you know, um, it's, it's kind of pre-capitalist, pre-modern in a way, but it, it was still a kind of hybrid of... Uh, form of whatever feudal aspects with capitalism and the capitalist dimension i think is what at least according to marx and we should say you know we're going to talk about marx's view whether it's exactly right or not is a kind of separate question but yeah <clears throat> he does seem to be saying that you know like any capitalist enterprise or system it has to grow in order to exist and if it stops growing it stops existing so i mean there is this kind of common view i think which is a kind of commonsensical view that you know, different systems, you know, just live and let live, you know, just kind of let, let it be. And I think that's the kind of narrative that some people might have had about the South, you know, the so-called war of northern aggression. But Marx's point is that, you know, the southern economy wasn't just in the business of using human beings as means of production, slaves, to produce cotton, which they would sell as a basic sort of raw export which, if it, had, if it had succeeded, would have left America completely undeveloped and we would have been like a colonial economy forever. It was also an economy based on the slave trade. And in order for that capitalist enterprise to continue, it had to grow. And so that meant the slave states had to expand, in an, or, or the new territories had to become slave territories so that the slave system and the economy could expand. And so that was the tension. Similarly, the industrial yeah. system had to expand. And so that's what caused the conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He, he uses the case of South Carolina. Um, for On the one hand, he argues that South Carolina had ceased to be a major agricultural exporter just because the soil had become depleted. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense... Um, for their economy to continue, I mean, they would have to, to participate in the agrarian economy. As you said, they became a state devoted to raising slaves. Mm -hmm. and that only works as an economic model if you have a continual expansion of slavery for, so that there's a market for your slaves. Mm -hmm. And Marx is, you know, in volume two, Marx called this um, Department One of Capital, the, sec the sector of the economy which produces means of production you know capitalism isn't just about making consumer goods like in this case you know cotton goods but you know it was about selling means of production which meant human slaves yeah yeah i think the example of south carolina is a good one uh because i it was it's pretty representative of of um they started it after all <laughs> yeah yeah so the interesting thing is South Carolina started out as an agrarian slave economy. Um, the the export articles, uh, as Marx calls them, uh, cotton, tobacco, sugar. Um, I don't know if those are specific to South Carolina. Well, okay, here it says um, South Carolina was mostly cotton. But all of these 
uh, agricultural products, I suppose, are done, are cultivated through extensive cultivation, which means that it's carried out with um, a lot of large gangs of slaves on a mass scale and in a way that um, degrades the soil. So South Carolina produced cotton until it degraded its soil so completely that it couldn't do that anymore, and it just switched over to making slaves. Uh, But if you want to make slaves, there needs to be... um, a territory that whose soil isn't degraded. So mm-hmm. you need to expand slavery to another state, uh, make that new state, you know, an agricultural uh, slave economy so that South Carolina could sell its slaves to mm-hmm. that new state. Well, that new state, uh, if it follows the same exact mm-hmm. agricultural model as South Carolina, that new territory is going to degrade its soil as well. Mm-hmm. So it'll have to continue to expand, I guess, until you get to the, west coast yeah and eventually slavery just dies right i mean this is this is like um the story you often hear which i think is makes a lot of sense that capitalism is always running up against its limits and turning them into barriers which it transcends and in this case it ran up against the limit of the soil which it depleted this is a perverse kind of per you know weird metamorphosis of capitalism it's not exactly it's not exactly proper capitalism um but it hits that barrier and it has to change and it ultimately has to create a market and this kind of reminds me of our the discussion we had about um the permanent war economy and and the fascist economy where you know if there's no market for steel start a perpetual war if if you have if you're gonna you know either you sell the steel or you go bankrupt no one's buying so start a war in this case you deplete the soil so you can't do agriculture but you could go into slaving and that means you have to expand into other territories yeah i mean you can imagine like the alternative history where the south wins and that like we're selling slaves to indonesia and just deporting them like we deport our you know productive base these days it's like philip k it's like a philip k dick uh, novel (laughs) okay so he says the acquisition of new territories becomes necessary so that one section of the slaveholders with their slaves may occupy new fertile lands and that a new market for slave raising therefore for the sale of slaves may be created for the remaining section um so this idea that um so that i take to be the the kernel of the economic account driving the political conflict yeah like it's not like it could have been the coexistence of two systems well that explains why the uh, slave economies of the South needed slavery to also exist in the expanding territories. Uh, I don't know if we've totally answered the question of why those new territories couldn't um, have slaves and free labor. Right. Well, I mean, so I guess, I guess, it's kind of dispelling a superficial view which would think that, okay, in the South they're making basic raw materials, like inputs for more refined consumer goods. Like you're making tobacco, which will end yeah. up getting used to maybe nowadays make cigarettes. It'd be an input for cigarettes or cotton would be an input for clothing. You know, you're like raw inputs for production processes. And, you know, they could have just switched. They could have just sort of deslaved it or something. And the point is, 
Um, no, because that's an, that was an integral component. And in the, in the, in the, I think it's the first, the first essay, the North American civil war, he goes into more detail. Um, and I think, you know, Missouri and Kansas were really the turning point, um, you know, trying to come to some settlement between North and South. And then it became clear that it couldn't when people were sent to the North in order to like almost colonize and settle, um, these new territories and to make them into s- to slave um, states. Yeah, there was a lot of filibustering, <laughs> just like armed gangs, you mm-hmm. know, going out west. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess this gives way to like the political dimension to this, which is that you know, if slavery was to win out, that would basically subordinate the whole country to an oligarchy of three hundred thousand slaveholders. Right. So there, an important thing. Right. I think the question is. Which economic class is going to be the ruling class of 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 North America or the Western Hemisphere? It seems like that's the sort of yeah question. Yeah, yeah. and 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 then farther downstream, a consideration for the small people who are around, like which one would be better for us? Which one yeah. should we root for? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of a heartless comparison just to call to talk about slavery in purely economic terms, but at the same time, like. It just seems like it never would have, it was always going to fail. Like it was never going to succeed against industrial labor. It certainly looks that way in hindsight, but I think it's also safe to say that as bad as industrial exploitation was, it was also better for everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly, um, I mean, it's, there's, uh, there there was never going to be like the kind of economic growth we've seen over the last 200 years. No, America would have been, uh, America would have never become a a global. Yeah. It'd be a backwater. Right. It'd still be a backwater. Yeah. So to be clear, it's relevant that in the United States, it would have been preferable to be a wage laborer for an industrial capitalist than to be a slave. Yeah. And and for that reason, um, if if industry and, uh, you know, slavery existed side by side in in, in the same economy, um, the you know, uh, the industrial um, business owners would would be able to compete, um, you know, with, with higher wages, uh, basically, and take up all the labor um, that uh, slaveholders uh, wanted for themselves. I mean, in the competition, if, if both of them were competing for the same people, uh, workers would rather be hired by industrialists than slaveholders. Well, it seems like, yeah, I mean, if the choice is between <laughs> slavery yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. wage yeah. labor, no matter how yeah. bad it is, that seems preferable. But I think also the like bigger point for Marx is that the um, industrial capitalist mode, way of conducting things is also, you know, better at developing productive forces in order to sort of get beyond the next hurdle of development, you know, it's progressive in the material sense. Whereas I think the stated goal of the planner system was for nothing ever to change. Right. I I guess all all I'm trying to point out is that the industrial capitalists have a reason for preventing or banning slavery. And that's, that's, they want to free the slaves so that they can go work for them in factories. Sure. 
Yeah. Uh, they want, uh, yeah, and if people are free to work for the industrialists, they'll choose those over the slave owner, uh, over, yeah, the slave plantation owners. Oh, yeah. Nobody chooses to be a slave, presumably. Right, right. Well, I mean, we don't choose to be a, a wage worker either, but I think, indeed, the point is not, the point doesn't depend on the purity of the motives of the capitalists in the North. They want this to end because exploitation is great for profit. Right. Yeah. The problem yeah, I mean, is, I mean, it's just a friendship of convenience, really. Yeah, I mean, I, just in terms of like the capacity for profit, it just seems like it's it's lights out. Like and, there's no competition there. And there are two reasons why um, uh, freeing uh, people to work for industrialists is a good thing for the industrialists. One is they get more workers. The other is that um, all those slaves become consumers when they become workers, so they're able to buy. Mm. Uh, the goods that industrialists make. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, again, we'll sort of, sort of uh, disclaimer here. Maybe if there's a labor historian or something listening, the person might be thinking, "Oh my God, we're just talking about Marx's view." So, um, yeah, uh, whether this is actually true or not, I don't know. It's a kind yeah, of different yeah, topic. Could be, he could be completely wrong about the whole thing. You know? Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know. But um, but it seems interesting. Also, this business about the Senate. That seemed to be um, a very interesting dimension of the discussion. He says, in order to assert its influence in the Senate and through the Senate, its hegemony over the United States, the South, therefore, required a continual formation of new slave states. So that's another dimension. He says, also in the second essay, the South um, was trying to get votes in the Senate specifically and trying to uh, increase its power there. Why? Well, the Senate is, yeah. you know, all the way back to Rome. It's it's not democratic. It's no. it's anti-democratic, mm -hmm. and it's 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 for a minority, wealthy oligarchy. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the dangerous thing. When you add states, you're adding Senate seats. That's and right. And that, well, that's serious business. <laughs> Someone's going to take those seats. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's the more once a sufficient mass of uh, new territories become slave states. Then you have a majority in, in the Senate that can't be overcome. That's right. It's so anti-democratic. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I mean, sort of democratic in the Madisonian sense, like, uh, fuck the poor majority. It's democratic for the slaveholders. They get all the democratic <laughs> that's right. democracy they can handle. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's like the when he talks about the oligarchy, um, I mean, there's an industrial oligarchy as well, so it's not like it's it's oligarchy or no oligarchy, right. but right. it's uh, it's preferable oligarchy, um, seemingly just for the reasons we were talking about in terms of just like what, just just the net benefits of industrial civilization, mm -hmm. which people you know still didn't really understand back then. Even I mean, maybe we don't even understand it now, but it's real. It's it's something that y it's 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 uh it's it's quantitatively and quantitative qualitatively real and definite. And uh you know, it's not a moral consideration. I mean, sure. Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, it does come in there, but I mean at bottom there's a sort of there's another dimension which isn't just the moral one. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean that's that's what I'm saying. It's 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 material. Mhm. Mm um, mm -hmm. So what about this? Um, there's another dimension, maybe, or Hef, did you have, maybe, what about this other, there's another thread in here about um, uh, the poor whites and the way that race gets used and maybe the way that um, 
racism kind of I don't, um, emerged in this context. There's this statement that he makes. Where is it? Um, so he says, okay, only by acquisition and the prospect of acquisition of new territories, as well as by filibustering expeditions, is it possible to square the interests of the poor whites with those of the slaveholders, to give their restless thirst for action a harmless direction, and to tame with tame them with the prospect of one day becoming slaveholders themselves. A strict confinement of slavery within its old terrain was bound, in a, bound according to economic law to lead to its gradual extinction. In the political sphere, to annihilate the hegemony that the slave states exercised through the Senate, and finally to expose the slaveholding oligarchy within its own states to the threatening perils from the poor whites. And so it seems like there's also he's also making a point about not just the exploitation or ultra exploitation of black slaves rather than uh white um or you know multiracial working class but also managing the class antagonism within the within the group white. of white people yeah yeah so what's he saying what is what's that all about well, um, does he give the population figures for like because he says he talks about three hundred thousand slaveholders? Mm -hmm. I mean, how many poor whites would there have been by his reckoning? It would have been millions, right? I'm not sure how many so, there were. I um, can't remember what he said, but presumably yeah. a lot more than that. I mean, this it seems kind of analogous to you know the idea that the bourgeoisie like dangles the prospect. You can be a millionaire too, you know. Just just stick with it, and you can be like me. It's kind of the same same message like you know if you if 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 you support slavery then you too can be a slaveholder it's not likely but hey i mean who knows <laughs> so um it's kind of familiar it's a familiar uh sounding gesture at least yeah um, it's it's funny because it seems basically like what they're doing is they're telling the they might be sort of telling the poor whites um yeah you're um you can be a slaveholder too but also it can get worse for you mm. you're you, you have know, something to lose you by have something not supporting to lose. us yeah yeah um the fact that there's uh, a lower strata of people um basically uh means that you know the, the poor whites you know, have some social standing that uh, they ought to try to preserve. They ought, so the idea is you ought to be interested in not being the underclass. Right. Yeah, that's interesting in the statement. So we opened with the general council, the excerpt from the general council to the federal council of French Switzerland. He does say basically, what does he say? Um, the ruling class of England and the ruling classes of England in North America sort of foster the antagonism between two groups of proletarians. Um, I think the poor whites in the South and blacks, but also whites and Irish or Brit or English and Irish. Um, and he's saying it's sort of artificially kept in being this antagonism and fostered by the bourgeoisie who know well that this split is the real secret to preserve their own power. They nourish that passion so as to keep permanently alive the underground struggle. Um, so that there's not working class unity yeah, yeah. To, op to oppose them. That seems that's the ideological function of the racial animus. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because we're in America, we're used to talking about black, white racism. But his example is the English and the Irish. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, for the English, like, yeah, they've done just unspeakable things all over the world. But like, they did it to the Irish first. Mm-hmm. So it's not fundamentally um, about skin color or anything. I mean, I think maybe if we should get into like, what what does this mean about how we should think about the racial dimension? Yeah. Well, what do you think about this? Because he says that he has this line in the in the Civil War in the United States where he says. Color is a matter of indifference, and the working class is everywhere born into slavery. And so, I mean, it seems like he's saying the the Southern planters really had this sort of cynical view that, like, I mean, they were using race because it sort of facilitated their ability to sort of ultra-exploit um, people in these uh, pre-capitalist conditions in a, in a continent that wasn't yet developed. But, you know, like, they didn't even really care. Um, and working class... Every worker is exploited. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I mean, I think maybe there's like the common culture war sense is that we exploit black people, we enslave them, because that's just how much we hate black people. We, we're going to go base our economy on enslaving them in the most inhumane ways. Yeah, that's the liberal view that it's it it backwards. That it's racism it's caused enslavement yeah. instead of enslavement economically yeah. um, motivating racist. Yeah, we're racist because we exploit them. Um, hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's why I take him to be. I mean, I think like Marx understood certainly that as far as capitalism is concerned, it doesn't matter what color skin you you have. Like you're, you're exploitable just the same. Labor power is labor power. So, um, yeah. That being said, though, the kind of exploitation that goes on in slavery, feudalism, and wage mm, s- mm. the wage labor system, modern capitalism are very different though clearly clearly yeah yeah well yeah i mean there's no question here of which is preferable for the worker um i mean i don't think anyone would choose to be an agricultural slave if they could Mm -hmm. be an industrial proletarian Mm -hmm. um yeah i think it's this is a really important thought though from the this statement that he makes about um the attempt to foster antipathy among segments of the working class along racial lines. I remember um, reading somewhere that, and this is, this is just so sinister, I think, um, that trains of former slaves were brought in to break strikes in the North um, by, by wealthy industrialists. Um, And so that charged, uh, that charged, uh, how do I say that gave a racial inflection to conflicts among laborers um, in a way which motivated um, antipathy, and and I think that there's no other way uh, there's no other way to see that than explicitly trying to make workers you know cut each other's throats in a race to yeah. the bottom, and 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 then and then ultimately you can blame them for being for for being racist. Um, yeah, they all hate each other. <laughs> like that's the easiest way. I mean, you know, you see it today. It's the same thing. Hate your neighbor. Um, it'll make you feel better. <laughs> F? Any final thoughts? I feel like this is, um, you know, really interesting, and it was fun to reread these, and it's a great example, I think, probably more more relatable than, you know, some of Marx's others essays for for North Americans easier than Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah. 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 Um, 
No, I mean, I, I, I'm very impressed. I mean, I'm always impressed with Marx. He's an you know, incredibly astute political observer. Um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not a historian. I can't attest that his understanding of the situation was adequate, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's a worthy application. It shows why his theory is interesting. It's not just some, it's not just economic theory. I mean, not that economic theory isn't interesting. I don't mean that. But, you know, it's, 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 it's not war. It's not World War II or like the Civil War. It's, it's, this is just something that's so deeply died into just like what it is to be an American, to grow up in America and to, you know, grow up around that history. So, yeah, I mean, I think he just adds a dimension to it that sadly isn't there for the most part. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I I think there's a lot at stake at that. There's a lot at stake in like what we take warfare to be or what we take, uh, you know, these grand historical events to be, because it seems like they just happened. Like, you know, like some, some, you know, political theater that is inaccessible to most people and most people don't understand it results in wars and so like we're actually supposed to believe that you know world war one happened just because of the archduke ferdinand being assassinated yeah yeah it's not a satisfying explanation there we have better answers to these things so Mm. that's what i get from this and uh, you know i think this can be applied in general to warfare up to today Mm. um yeah this what i like the most about reading uh, this commentary on the Civil War is for me, not so much how it explains the Civil War, but how much it, you know, validates this whole approach of trying to explain something by identifying the big economic actors, you know, who are the big, uh, like classes, uh, what are the, what are the, class divides not just between upper and and lower classes but you know among the upper classes you know what are the different interests at play and how might those be uh leading to conflict uh yeah i think that's you know a model that you can use to explain a lot of conflict and a lot of you know uh, political developments Mm -hmm. you know throughout capitalist history yeah and i mean i think it's like I mean, uh, this is probably sounds kind of insane to a lot of people, but there are causes in history Mm. and you can attribute causes to historical events. Mm. I'm not saying it's easy or straightforward, Mm -hmm. but there are ways to do it that are intellectually satisfying. And they're hard to discover. But I mean, you know, there's this other way of looking at it. Um, What is it? History is just one damn thing after the other. I mean, that was the super old sort of super old view, like maybe English empiricism but then also, you know, with postmodernism, um, I've heard that almost exact quote, but I think the, you know, they say the fuck, and they, they say <laughs> fuck instead of damn or whatever. It's just one fucking thing after the next. Yeah. And um, I mean, if that satisfies you, then I don't know really what to say. But, you know, it's not going to be easy to find reasons why the things happen. But to just sort of throw your hands up and say, you know, we're all skeptical about meta narratives. Things just happen and you can't say anything about it. I mean, that seems like that's that's a cop-out and a sort of you know that's abdicating re- responsibility to understand the world that we live in i mean for me what's so interesting about reading these things is that i mean anybody's ever thrown themselves at capital a few times it's, you know it's like throwing yourself at a brick wall um when you have one of these essays um hopefully you find the right ones uh you see the value of 
you know, political economic theory. Like the theory right. per se is not that interesting maybe and it's not that important and it's certainly not that useful but or at least it seems that way sometimes but when you regard it in the context of a live problem especially problems we're still living with like we're still living with the fallout of this shit you know what yeah, i mean yeah. that's when it i don't know it pays and for for me it's definitely so uh, yeah, well, if you enjoyed this discussion, this is brought to you by Class Unity Political Education. Uh, go to classunity.org slash categories backslash education to uh, see the courses we've offered. Um, we've been working over the past few years uh, towards developing just a conception of modern history, which, you know, the past 250 years, 200 years, however you want to periodize it, but it's the onset of the most drastic period of transformation in human history by far. And it's the task of, you know, politically minded people like ourselves to try to make sense of this if we can. So it's been, if this interests you, please, uh, you know, check out our programming. And uh, yeah, we hope to see you. We have. yeah, this was actually one of the one of the uh, yeah of yeah. Events this is this is based on a just a one-off event, but we have a, you know reading series that go over topics fairly in depth. Uh, we had one on fascism, on imperialism, uh, women in Marxism, heterodox economics. We've done a variety of different topics, and uh, we're going to continue doing it into the foreseeable future. Um, and yeah, come uh, help us. Uh, Make sense together of the world. It's a, it's a group activity. Can't do it by yourself. So stop on by. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. small but i think very important point that we forgot to mention in our discussion mm-hmm. so uh, i might as well just edit in at the end go ahead so we missed one small detail with i think because we just considered it so obvious also uh mark's uh glazes over it just like we did because it's obvious to him but I think it's worth making explicit. There's a big difference between the economic model of the agrarian slaveholders and the industrial capitalist, and that's the following. The industrial capitalist invests capital, hires a lot of workers, or 
relatively few workers and the commodities that they make for him, he can sell at a high enough price mm-hmm. to pay them decent wages and still come away with a big fat profit in his pocket. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, relatively in the spectrum of things compared to slaves. Which is right. where you're going to... Right. You know, so go. the capitalist sells these commodities. He gets a, a big enough revenue that he can pay his work, the, the relatively small number of workers, decent wages, and still uh, have a lot left over as profit. Mm-hmm. The agrarian slaveholder does not have that luxury because uh, he doesn't have a, a lot of machinery and equipment or anything like that. He's relying on a huge number of slaves to produce a relatively small output so that when the slaveholder sells that output, the cotton, the tobacco, the agricultural products, he doesn't have that much money left. Um, He doesn't have that much money um, such that if he uh, tried to pay his laborers as much of a wage as the capitalist was paying his, he would make a profit. Mm -hmm. So in order for that slaveholder to even make money uh, as a farmer, as a farm owner, he would have to have slaves. Mm -hmm. So you're saying basically that um, if 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 the plantation owner had to hire wage laborers and to produce the raw material products sort of crude exports with wage labor, it wouldn't be profitable enough to continue. There's something about the nature of that enterprise which uh, the way it was conducted required the most ruthless exploitation, the cheapest possible labor, and that it's somehow some kind of crude, primitive variety of economy which, you know, capitalism helped us get beyond and um so the conflict is also there like they need ultra exploitation in order to remain viable in that that pits them against industrial capitalists who would prefer to exploit workers for profits but also are more productive and more profitable yep Hmm. yeah which doesn't necessarily paint our capitalist in a rosy light as marx puts it i mean there's still exploitation involved there's still exploitation involved. I think what that highlights to me is how desperate the um, slaveholders were, because um, yeah, they yeah the the end of slavery for them was the end of their enterprise. So it was very much a you know a life or death struggle, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that was determined by. Um, the economic conditions as described by the economic models that were available to these people. Mm-hmm. And that's why the fight was so vicious, I suppose. Yep. All right. Well, glad you clarified that. Yeah. Thank you. Good night. The cultivation of the Southern export articles, cotton, tobacco, sugar, etc., carried on by slaves is only remunerative as long as it is conducted with large gangs of slaves on a mass scale and on wide expanses of a naturally fertile soil, which requires only simple labor. Intensive cultivation, which depends less on fertility of the soil than on investment of capital, intelligence, and energy of labor, is contrary to the nature of slavery. (laughs) ¶¶